Morning Liberty. All right, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is Nate Thurston with Good Morning Liberty. Our co-host, Charlie, is not here today, but I do have a guest. Our guest today is the John Paul Stevens Professor of Law at Northwestern University and author of the book, Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. Professor Andrew Koppelman, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. So I, as we discussed previously, I'm really excited about this conversation. I did pick up your book. I have been reading it. I would recommend it to everyone who's listening, even even if you don't agree with everything you hear. I have found it very valuable so far. Uh, so before we get into the book, though, I wanted to talk about a few topics that are uh, on the in the front of everyone's minds right now that I've seen you've been writing about. One of the main topics uh, would be I want to talk about the, the abortion conversation because you okay. do have a, a an interesting argument on that that I haven't heard anyone else mention. Uh, then I want to talk about some of the the rights conversations, say gay rights or LGBTQ rights, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we'll talk about the book as well. So I just want to let everyone know. But sure. but first, uh, do you want to give yourself any other introduction other than what I did? Well, I'm a law professor at Northwestern, and uh, I work on issues at the intersection of law and political philosophy. The reason why I think that the interaction is fruitful is because law just is political philosophy with guns. <laughs> I've never heard that before. That's great. I like it. All right. Um, well, let's get into this uh, this abortion conversation first, because it's something people are talking a lot about. Uh, I why don't you tell me about this argument in using the 13th Amendment as it relates to uh, abortion? Yeah, so this is entirely separate from the book. I've written a lot mm-hmm. of things on one argument that I've been making for some decades now uh, is, well, a bit, bit, bit of background. After Roe versus Wade, Roe versus Wade is not a very persuasively reasoned opinion. And so there's been something of a cottage industry among the professors since trying to figure out if there is a better basis in the Constitution for a right to abortion. And I've argued in several articles, free on the web, Google my name and SSRN and they'll, or abortion, and they'll come right up, uh, that abortion ought to be understood to be protected by the 13th Amendment, which prohibits slavery or involuntary servitude. Some of the argument comes out of the case law, but the most fundamental uh, 13th Amendment argument is that the 13th Amendment abolishes a specific institution, the institution of antebellum slavery. It says that the country is not going to do that to human beings again. One of the things that we did to slaves was we compelled them to have children against their will. That's not analogous to slavery. That's what slavery was for a significant part of the slave population. And slavery is fundamentally about loss of control of the body, having your body appropriated and put to work for purposes not your own. So there's at least, uh, the 13th Amendment is at least relevant to the question. This doesn't resolve the abortion question because, of course, there's the question of state interest, which abortion, the 13th Amendment doesn't resolve, but it certainly rebuts the claim that the Supreme Court, Justice Alito, made in Dobbs that the Constitution says nothing at all about abortion. Of course, there's the question also of whether or not a voluntary action 
uh, resulted in a pregnancy as opposed to an involuntary action resulting in the pregnancy. And I would mm-hmm. say that would have an, a, an issue using the 13th Amendment to, to argue against that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, most fundamentally, you can't contract yourself into slavery. Uh, you know, that's uh, settled law. But uh, you know, the level of voluntariness of sex, uh, sexual conduct varies considerably. Uh, if you uh, tell a married woman who uses contraceptives and the contraceptives fail, uh, well, you voluntarily entered into that. Uh, you know, it's, uh, the level of voluntariness is questionable. And of course, uh, you know, lots of people support rape exceptions, but rape exceptions are impossible to administer. The law is terrible at discerning the difference between voluntary and involuntary sex. But it really comes down to the question of what uh, it's reasonable to expect of people. I mean, slaves in the South didn't have to work. It's just that if they didn't, they'd be whipped. But if they were willing to be whipped, they could refuse to work. I, uh, you might find it as a surprise. I find it kind of ironic because the argument that you're making sounds a lot like the argument that a lot of libertarians make when it comes to uh, abortion. And the 13th Amendment argument actually play, mm-hmm. plays more with me because it has been my argument against the state getting involved in abortion. Because to me, at its logical conclusion, uh, you would have to tie a woman down to a bed and put in the feeding tube and force her to be an incubator for, for a pregnancy at the end of the day uh, because she could choose to not feed herself, throw herself down the, you know, uh, harm herself, mm-hmm. whatever. And so that's actually the argument that I make and that the co-host Charlie makes, even if we're morally opposed uh, to abortion, it it kind of sounds like you're making the same argument that we do. Yeah, there are differences, but uh, yeah. you know, there are affinities as well. Yeah. Um, the other thing, you know, I, I think we could spend a lot of time talking about this book. Once again, the book is Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. I'll put a link to it in the show notes for everyone. Like I said, I'd... I, well, we definitely have disagreements, but I have actually enjoyed listening to the to the book. I'm learning a lot uh, from listening to this book. Why don't you give everyone the basic synopsis? Mm-hmm. So uh, the fundamental argument of the book is that uh, libertarianism comes in flavors, that uh, libertarianism. The motivation for writing the book is that uh, when I wanted to learn about libertarianism in connection with another project that I was working on, I found that there just wasn't a good overview of what this philosophy is, what its different forms are, where it came from, how it mutated over time. And I thought that I needed to tell that story. I admire what Friedrich Hayek was doing in 1944 when he wrote The Road to Serfdom. Uh, There was a broad consensus among politicians and intellectuals in the late 1930s that central direction of the economy was the only way to deal with the Depression, because the only leaders who had successfully dealt with the Depression were Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler. And Westerners didn't admire their methods, but they thought that some kind of central control of the means of production was the only way out. And Hayek protested that this was inevitably going to be wasteful and tyrannical. And he was right about that. And uh, one point that I make in the book uh, that I think has been overlooked is that he really has converted his political opponents uh, in England. Uh, In the United States, uh, 
I think it was always a category mistake to try to apply Hayek's argument to the New Deal and thereafter, which is where libertarianism first enters as a protest against Roosevelt's New Deal, because Roosevelt never proposed to nationalize the means of production. He never proposed central direction of the economy. He wanted capitalism with a welfare state. And that's a very different kind of thing, uh, because it doesn't try to micromanage economic production. The kind of rights-based libertarianism that says that uh, as a matter of right, we need a, liberate, a minimal state that only protects against force and fraud and does nothing else, or in more extreme libertarian formulations, no state at all, that's some distance from Hayek, and I think much harder to defend philosophically. So I, the book goes through the differences between them and then tries to show uh, at the end how the more extreme form of libertarianism has influenced American politics, most importantly by crippling the capacity of the American government to deal with climate change. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack right there. And I think uh, one mm -hmm. of the main arguments I was listening to you make uh, in the book was that we moved away from the Hayek form of libertarianism and more towards a Rothbardian, uh, Ayn Rand mm -hmm. form of libertarianism, which mm -hmm. uh, the Rothbardian would be more like an anarcho-capitalism uh, or yep. or anarchy, uh, which I, I try to differentiate those. I think that uh, we get grouped together a lot, but... I'm a libertarian uh -huh. that doesn't want to get rid of the state, although uh -huh. I consider myself an Ayn Rand libertarian. Uh, she she uh -huh. still thought that we needed the government. Yeah. She just wanted wanted it funded yeah. voluntarily. That was a, that's a fundamental difference between Rand and Rothbard. Rand was not an anarchist. Neither is Robert Nozick. Okay. Okay. Good. I'm glad I had. I'm glad I had that part right at least. I will. I will preface by, by saying that I have not read Rothbard and I haven't mm -hmm. read The Road to Serfdom in probably mm -hmm. 15 years. Uh, so I'm not studied up on that. But I do. Uh, my favorite books are all Ayn Rand books, <laughs> and so mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's not that she's convinced me that all these things are the right way. I listen to her books on repeat because I didn't find anything I disagreed with. Uh, and mm -hmm. it, it just sounded like she was saying uh, more clearly what was already uh, in my head. So I, I don't feel like she pushed me in a specific direction or she created this mm -hmm. this new form of thing that I was following. Uh, I felt like I came to that naturally. Uh, do you think that's do you think that's a possibility that a lot of these people have come to that naturally and they're fans of people like Ayn Rand or that those people are directing? Oh. Well, people have a common sense uh, libertarianism. They think that, uh, you know, their experiences that, you know, they go to work, they get paid. And so their money is being taken away if they pay any taxes at all. And uh, that they'd be freer if there was a smaller state with less tax. I mean, there's a certain commonsensical appeal to that. But there's a certain commonsensical appeal to lots of ideas that are wrong. If you tell somebody, well, you know, a pound of iron weighs more than a pound of feathers. That'll make a certain intuitive sense at the beginning. And then you think about it and it's obviously wrong, but you got to think about it. <laughs> um, all right. The So saying that it's obviously wrong and saying it's commonsensical, the thing I would ask about is, uh, you know, is it is it common sense or is it a moral belief that that I would own mm -hmm. the, the product of my my labor. Am I thinking of that in a, in a common sense term, or is that just my moral mm -hmm. conviction? 
well, there's uh, a certain moral sense to the idea that you own the product of your labor. There's some question about what counts as the product of your labor when you are part of a complex division of labor. Uh, you know, you and I here are, uh, I hope, producing some value by having this conversation, but we are doing it through an enormous, sophisticated system of electronic communication that we did not ourselves create. And so we're part of a very complicated division of labor in which it's very hard to figure out exactly what share belongs to who. So we get into philosophical questions of justice and what the appropriate division of rewards is in a complicated division of labor. And chapter two of the book tries to work that out, beginning with the philosopher John Locke, who I think first formulates the idea that I have a right to what I've mixed my labor with, and tries to work out the ramifications of that. And what about the the decision to agree on a on a wage? I'll pay you uh, for your time spent doing this, and of course, I'm gonna mm-hmm. I'm gonna own this company. I'm gonna own the patent. Well, I'm gonna own the shares of, yeah. of the company, and and you've agreed to come and work for this mm-hmm. amount of money. Uh, what's wrong with that? Yeah. Oh, the question is always a question of fair conditions. If people make agreements under unfair conditions. We normally don't honor those agreements. If uh, I uh, if I point a gun at you and I tell you I won't shoot you if I, you give me your wallet, and you say, "Deal, here's my <laughs> wallet. Don't shoot me," and I honor my side of the agreement by not shooting you, and then uh, five minutes later the police pick me up and propose to give you back your wallet, and I say, "Hey." That's not right. We made a deal. It's my wallet now. I held up my end of the agreement by not shooting him. It's my wallet. We've got to figure out uh, why we're not going to honor that agreement. It was an agreement. Now, in that explanation, to me, you describe more accurately our system of taxation and not so much the agreed upon labor between an employee and the business. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It all comes down to what the initial entitlements are and how you justify the initial entitlements. The uh, the one thing I will tell you, I had uh, I have a hard time as a libertarian getting over in the book is this idea that uh, that we are still being controlled, or the right, or the Republicans are being pulled towards this libertarian philosophy. Mm-hmm. And as a libertarian who talks to a bunch of libertarians, we complain about Republicans as much as we do Democrats and mm-hmm. see and see in no way are we moving towards any form of libertarianism. Uh, that we would agree with. The state gets bigger and bigger uh, year after year, and Republicans seem to just have a disagreement of what their bigger state is going to do versus what Democrats' bigger state is going to do. And so I have a hard time going down the line of saying that that Republicans are actually being driven by these libertarian ideas. Well, uh, however, on the day that we're having this conversation, April 27th, 2023, uh, the Republicans are about to crash the federal debt uh, because they are demanding massive cuts in government spending. And there's a face-off between the parties about that. So the Republicans clearly are devoted to the idea of smaller government. And uh, for the sake of smaller government, they are willing to cut things that uh, are 
unquestionably precursors of a prosperous capitalist economy like the National Institutes for Health, the National Academy of Science, basic research, uh, basic infrastructure. Um, all of this stuff is going to have to be cut, and it's bad for business. But if you think that any government spending is a bad thing and it's got to be restrained and taxes have to be cut, that grows out of uh, that philosophy. They are also opposed to anything that uh, government does to uh, address climate change, which I think is fundamentally a betrayal of their philosophy because a fundamental commitment of theirs is that you're not supposed to aggress against other people and putting things into the air that's going to hurt them counts as aggression within their principle. I would uh, I I would partially agree on the on the climate change issue. I think Republicans do a bad job on that. Uh, I'm someone who believes that the climate is changing and that human beings have an effect on the climate. But I also believe that a free market is going to do a far better job at solving that problem uh, than than the government will. And and so I, I will say that Republicans do seem to do a, a worse job when it comes to climate change. We could discuss something like a carbon tax uh, or a system mm -hmm. where businesses actually have to pay for the damage that they are doing. So, mm -hmm. you know, you you put pollutants into the air. And I think Milton Friedman used to say, you you dirty my shirt. And, you know, whose uh, who's job is it to, to pay for the fact that you dirty my shirt? Uh, there's definitely uh, plenty of room for, for conversation on that. Uh, back to the idea of the of cutting the spending for the government, though, does that mean that any time we argue to reduce spending, that that is out of libertarianism? Is, is it possible that the government could grow too big and spend too much money and that you think that that level should come down and that not be because Ayn Rand is talking in your ear? It all depends on what the money is being spent on. It's too broad a question to say, should there be more spending or should there be less spending? Are we getting our money's worth for what we're spending? Some government spending unquestionably is wasteful and stupid and needs to be stopped. Other government spending is absolutely necessary uh, and uh, for, well, a variety of reasons. Um, so I think it's just too crude a question. <laughs> I got you. Um, so it's a question. You know, it's like it's like asking, well, a year from now, uh, you know, what three hundred sixty day, five days from now, how much should I spend? Uh, well, I don't know. I might have a medical emergency. <laughs> it's hard to tell. So, uh, one point that you make in the book, uh, you point out the Nordic countries as a mm -hmm. good model because they have, uh, they do have really big welfare programs and. Of course, mm -hmm. one, of, one of my questions on that is, is would you favor the economic system? You see, I, I hear a lot of people talk about Denmark and Sweden, and they point to them as what we should do. But then, say, uh, Republicans lower the corporate tax rate to what mm -hmm. Denmark's corporate tax rate is. Uh, they, they don't like that. Or if we were to have mm -hmm. a tax starting in what we consider to be the middle class or upper, upper middle class at 50 percent, no one in this country mm -hmm. would favor that. So they have an economic mm -hmm. system that creates the ability mm -hmm. for them to have that welfare state. But I don't hear a lot of people mm -hmm. pushing for that system. They just want the benefits. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's lots of ways in which you can structure a tax system. There's lots of ways in which you can structure a welfare state. Uh, the aspect of those systems that I want to call attention to is the combination of a really robust safety net so that if you are a barista 
uh, member of the precariat. You have pretty good, quite good health insurance, quite good retirement. Uh, you, uh, the state has made sure that you have decent and affordable housing. But at the same time, we got go-go capitalism. Sweden has more billionaires per capita than the United States. There are enormous economic opportunities. And uh, the country is less concerned about inequality than it is about making sure that the worst off members of society are doing well. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. While we're always growing and changing, so getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process. One thing I learned is self-awareness. I learned how to understand situations from different points of view. Over time, we learn what our personal boundaries are and what we need to find meaning and happiness in our lives. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. I've used a therapy. It can be very beneficial. My life has gotten immensely better since trying it. And Charlie does it too. In fact, he's been a BetterHelp customer for years. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out the brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. That's betterhelp.com slash GML today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash GML. Do you think that... Uh, I Two questions here, I guess. Do you think that that robust welfare state, that robust that robust safety net creates a bit of a social cohesion to where people aren't as worried about the inequality because they do have that safety net? So there might be more billionaires mm -hmm. per capita, but the the people mm -hmm. are less, uh, less angry about the fact that there's more rich people. Well, yeah, I think that this is the recipe for a stable capitalism. One well, it's an issue for capitalism. The very thing that's good about it, the fact that it's so adaptable, that it is constantly changing, that it is constantly uh, shifting in response to new technologies and new demands, means that life in capitalism is extremely unstable. People don't hang on to the same job for 40 years. It makes life more insecure. Uh, if you're going to maintain political support for that system, then you've got to have some adjustment to the system of distribution so that people feel secure within that system. Otherwise, they are going to vote for Juan Perón type demagogues who will ruin the system because they can dole out favors to the working class. And what do you say to someone like me who has, I, I have a deep moral conviction that it's wrong to take money from one person and give it to another. And it's not just because I don't want my own money taken. Of course, that's that's part of it. Uh, but I, I think it's wrong to do that. I think it's immoral to do mm -hmm. that. And mm -hmm. so what do I do in this scenario? Um, well, you've made a moral claim. Uh, the moral claim is backed by moral arguments. In chapter two of the book, I try to take up those moral arguments. I think that they are mistaken. But uh, you know, when we disagree about political philosophy, I've got good news for you. People have been doing political philosophy for some centuries now, and uh, there are better and worse arguments, and we can talk about what they are. I think that it's just a mistaken conception of property that's undergirding your moral convictions. But uh, you know, I would have to persuade you of that. You shouldn't accept that just on my say-so. Well, I, I will say the scenario that you bring up in the book, and of course the book's called Burning Down the House, and we talk about this uh, scenario in uh, South 
South Fulton, I believe, uh, Obion mm-hmm. County. Uh, Obion County is Tennessee. Yeah. Uh, there was uh, there was uh, an episode uh, that happened during the Obamacare debates, which then raised some of the same issues. A county essentially decided to privatize its uh, fire protection by contracting with a nearby municipality to provide fire protection. Each individual homeowner had to pay a fee each year. And this one guy, he was getting old. And while he paid every year before, one year he forgot his house caught fire and the fire department came and watched his house burn down. And there was a big debate afterward about whether the fire department had done the right thing and whether this was what would happen in a just society. And everybody understood that what they were really arguing about was Obamacare, which has the same basic idea. Are, is, is society going to protect you from unexpected, undeserved misfortunes like fire or disease, or are you on your own? And. Uh, I offer it as an illustration because the uh, the earlier Hayekian form just took for granted. Well, of course, you know, misfortunes that nobody can anticipate. Uh, we ought to protect you from that, whatever your economic resources are. And it got supplanted by a different kind of libertarianism that says that if you have bad luck, uh, that's your tough luck. It's not the job of the rest of us to look after you. I will say you picked a perfect example because I find myself coming down on both sides of the issue, and Mm -hmm. I have not been able to resolve that uh, so far. Mm -hmm. I understand the subscription service. I understand why they did not put it out uh, on a, a, of course, you know the argument. If you put out someone's house who didn't, someone fire who didn't pay for it, then why would anyone else pay for it? Therefore, the entire system Mm -hmm. falls apart. And so we, we understand that argument. But then there's the case of people standing there with checkbooks saying that they would pay whatever it costs to get them to put out the fire and them still refusing to put out the fire. And I cannot resolve that morally in my mind, why they why they wouldn't have done that. I, I disagree with that policy. But uh, the prior question is, how are we going to structure the society's response to matters like fire. And uh, the way it's done in most places in the United States is there's just public fire protection. You don't have a private company to decide whether you're going to, whether your fire is going to get put out, your house gets caught fire, the fire department comes and puts it out and it's paid out of tax money and you don't get to decide whether to pay your tax money. And uh, I actually prefer to do it that way. I don't have to make decisions and I don't have to remember things. I just pay my taxes and it gets taken care of. I can focus on other things. The ability to focus on other things seems to me like freedom. I, uh, I So when it comes to the fire department question, I, I will say, sure, Let's talk about that. Let's talk about whether or not there needs to be taxation for fire department and our police. And then as a libertarian mm-hmm. who reads the news every day, I realize we are so far removed from that being mm-hmm. the discussion uh, that we're having. I would love to get down to how we argue about how we're going to pay for our fire departments. But uh, we have mm-hmm. a lot of other things. Now, how do you tie this into Obamacare? Um, well, yeah. Really, fires and disease are similar in and present similar issues. They are unexpected things that can happen to you. They can happen to rich people. They can happen to poor people. And people can be 
can find themselves in a situation where they are facing this terrible, expensive misfortune, and they don't have the resources to deal with that. And then we have to decide as a society, well, are we going to devote some of our resources to protecting people from those misfortunes, or are they going to be on their own? Disease and fire protect present pretty similar issues. Now, in, in the Obamacare case, you had uh, the law requiring people to buy insurance uh, from, mm-hmm. a, from a private company. I didn't like the law requiring me to purchase a product from a private company. Uh, that, mm-hmm. that was the main issue I had, with, I had with it. But to solve the fire department question, should the law require people to pay the $75 fee to the private fire department? Does that yeah, so there issue. is this difference between them that uh, there are pathologies that come out of having competition among fire departments. Uh, we used to have multiple private fire departments and they were entitled to, you know, people would buy insurance in advance or the fire department was allowed to charge you afterward if they put out your fire. And uh, there were episodes where different two different fire departments would arrive at the same fire at the same time, and then they'd get into fights with each other about who could put out the fire. Uh, and there was one episode where multiple fire departments fought with one another, and the building burned to the ground while they were fighting with each other. Uh, so, whereas with the insurance, you don't uh, get that. The, the idea of having multiple competitors provide a service. It's actually kind of an old libertarian idea. It's the idea of vouchers. It's been proposed with uh, schools. The idea of providing it for healthcare was actually proposed by Friedrich Hayek in 1960, arguing against the British National Health Service, where which provides everybody with free medical care and the doctors are on the government payroll. And mm-hmm. Hayek said, you know, really would be more efficient instead of having a government monopoly to have multiple companies that compete with one another to provide better service at lower cost. And then you'd have some of the benefits of ca- of competition. Of course, you'd have to require the companies to insure everybody, no matter how sick they are. And you'd have to require everybody to buy insurance. They couldn't wait until they were sick to buy insurance. And by the time you read this description in 1960, it's clear that Hayek has described Obamacare. And uh, and this device of using private companies uh, to, as a way of providing a service instead of a government monopoly, it's something that uh, proponents of the free market have been arguing for a long time. During the debates about Obamacare, there was one Republican judge on the D.C. Circuit who said it's kind of odd to say that this is unconstitutional when you know, conservatives have been arguing for years that we should use vouchers for all sorts of government services. That judge was Brett Kavanaugh, who's now on the Supreme mm-hmm. Court. And he was right about that, I think. That's interesting. Um, I, I also wanted to ask you about, I read an article that you wrote, uh, see it was published by The Hill, and this had to do with the vaccine mandates. So mm-hmm. uh, a, another thing we'll find disagreement on, but uh, where, where the libertarians go wrong on this? Um, well, uh, the uh, question of whether government could require you to be vaccinated was resolved by the Supreme Court in 1905, when uh, Massachusetts had a requirement of smallpox vaccination. And there was a guy who resisted uh, smallpox vaccination. 
uh, and the Supreme Court said, look, you know, there's a public uh, interest here, an urgent public interest in getting rid of this disease. And so that claim lost. And since that time, smallpox has been eradicated. And I think there's some causal connection there. Uh, but actually, the mandates for vaccines in the face of COVID uh, are a much milder form of mandate. Mandate isn't really the right word. It is a requirement for employment. If you are going to work in large workplaces, uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration said we can require employers with a large number of employees to require their employees to be vaccinated. Because the whole point of occupational safety and health is that when you go to work, you should not die because you went to work. And an even milder uh, requirement is the requirement of the federal government or of healthcare employers to have their employees vaccinated for COVID before they work with frail old sick people. I think I, I would, I am fine with the government mandating their own employees uh, to get vaccinated. And I, in fact, we got in plenty of fights with libertarians because I was fine with businesses uh, having the rule that they would uh, require that for their employees to get vaccinated. They could require it of their customers as well if they want them to show mm -hmm. proof of vaccination. Uh, now, when we compare this to smallpox and polio and things like that, the first thing I would say is, does there need to be a threshold uh, mortality rate uh, where you can say that they can do this? Because comparing those things, they seem like very different uh, diseases. And then what about the fact that this vaccine, unfortunately, turned out to not prevent infection or transmission? And that seems to be very different along the line of mandates as well. Uh, well, we disagree about the empirics. The death rate from COVID has plunged since the vaccine uh, rolled out. We have a million people died, uh, but we are no longer seeing emergency rooms and intensive care units crowded with people with COVID. So uh, I think we just disagree empirically about whether the vaccine worked. But the question of what vaccines to require seems to me to be, uh, you know, at some point it becomes a prudential question about how effective is a vaccine and uh, who ought to take it under what circumstances. I don't think it's a matter of abstract principle. The other free market argument I have for the mandating vaccines, uh, first off, the way that you spoke about using the word mandate uh, because it's a requirement for employment, it sounds like some of our previous conversation where they're agreeing on the amount that they'll work for and there there could be a, mm -hmm. a, a threat over that. Yep. So so it is still a, a threat of, okay, you don't have to do it, but you're going to lose your job and you won't be able to support your family. So uh, that's still... Uh, well, no, wait a second. You can get another job. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's not the case that the employer is the only person in the universe who can employ you. That's true. That's true. Let's see that. Um, yeah, so you can get another job as long as it's at a at someone who didn't fit within the threshold. My my free market mm -hmm. uh, my my free market idea would be that it's not a good idea to mandate these vaccines because I want better vaccines, and I mm -hmm. think that the businesses have less of an incentive to refine their product and innovate their product 
when people are forced to use their cur- the current product. If we were all mandated to use the original iPhone that came out, I don't know if they would have created another one. And and so well, I, I I think that not having the mandate gives us better products that could save more lives in the future. I don't know. The pharmaceutical companies are under enormous pressure to come up with better vaccines. The uh, effectiveness of the COVID vaccine wanes over time, and it's not 100% effective. My guess is that any company, that and it seems pretty clear, if any of the companies come up with a vaccine that is more effective and longer lasting and gives better protection, than uh, vaccines that are already out there, that company is going to make billions of dollars under the present system. People will stop using any of the existing vaccines and use that one instead. So you don't need, but you're not going to advance this by putting pressure on uh, a crowded business where they slaughter chickens. They don't get to make the vaccine. So I, I told you I didn't I didn't finish the book yet. Uh, have been reading it, but uh, typically at the end of a book you get to uh, what is our path forward? What's the way forward? What's the right way to do things? And I don't know if that's how you end the book. Like I said, I haven't finished it, but mm-hmm. I am curious. So while we go through all these historical examples and we talk about Rothbard and Hayek and Rand and mm-hmm. all that, so what is the proper path forward? Uh, well, as I said uh, the basic path forward. I mean, there's only so much political philosophy can do. We've got to figure out what a good society looks like. And the question of how one gets there is going to involve prudential questions that, uh, you know, I can't help you with sitting at my desk. Uh, But uh, I will say that uh, a good society actually looks kind of like what the United States has looked like for some decades with a more robust safety net than we've had thus far. The aim of the book is primarily negative, to clear away a certain mistaken kind of libertarianism. Uh, So part of the ambition of the book is to be Narcan for Ayn Rand. If uh, If somebody is entranced by Ayn Rand, you need to hand them a copy of my book and that will keep them alive until you get them to the hospital. Listen, that's a false claim. I read almost the whole thing and I'm doing just fine. Everything's fine. But luckily, uh, I've been indoctrinated very thoroughly uh, so far, so it didn't all just fall right off. Now, I I do want to ask quick before we go, do you think our society, our culture is in any shape to come to agreements on anything right now? Uh, I'm That's what concerns me the most. It's not even uh, the, the the economics and I, I just I'm I'm very uh, worried about how we are as a culture and a society right now. You know, something like that. All of us try to do our part. Uh, you know, you know, I'm a professor and a teacher, and I write books. The only thing that I am useful for is dispelling ignorance and confusion. You dispel ignorance and confusion one bit at a time. The aim of the book is to be a contribution in that direction. I agree. And I think people like us having a conversation like this, well, uh, many of the people listening might not agree with you or your book. I mean, the fact that we're able to sit down mm-hmm. and have a conversation and we'll still disagree with each other afterwards, but at least we don't 
hate each other. We don't want to throw spears and arrows Absolutely. at each other. And that well, that, that's another thing that I think that the society uh, needs, uh, has, I think, lost track of that, uh, you know, people honestly come to disagreements. You know, I it's clear that, you know, you and I disagree about uh, some basic premises about property. And you believe what you believe. And I honestly believe what I believe. And what are we supposed to do except keep talking? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, people can disagree with you without being bad people. That's, uh, I think that's a great place to leave it uh, right there. Uh, so, Professor Koppelman, where can people go to follow your work? Uh, well, I have a website, andrewkoppelman.com, uh, A-N-D-R-E-W-K-O-P-P-E-L-M-A-N. Uh, so, uh, that has links to all of the articles that uh, I'm uh, producing. I'm writing a lot these days. Uh, and I also am on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. You can find me there. Professor, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This was fun.